Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name is Ryan. And I am Rosie. And this is episode oh. 93 Hi, Zook. of our podcast. Can you believe that? I cannot believe it. I can believe there's a cat struggling to get settled. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, tonight's case is very interesting. It's kind of a mystery, and it's very much divided with two different sides full of passionate people. So when I was researching this, I tried to find sources from both sides, and uh, we're going to try to tell the story as unbiased as possible, but by the end, I think we kind of know what happened. But both sides have valid arguments, and in the end, it's a completely terrible outcome, so just be prepared. It gets a little dark. So, with that said, who are we talking about tonight, Rosie? We're sharing the story of Jason and Molly Corbett. Yes, so we're going to begin with part of a 911 call. Davidson County 911, what is the address of your emergency? Um, my name is Tom Martins. I'm at 160 Panther Creek Court, and we need help. Okay, what's uh, going on there? My, my uh, daughter's husband, um, my son-in-law, um, got in a fight with my daughter. I intervened, and I... I think um, he's in bad shape. We need help. Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? He's, he's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. Wow. Yeah, pretty heavy 911 call. I can't imagine being the operator. That was just the beginning of the 911 call made by Thomas Martins, the father of Molly Martins Corbett. Uh, her husband, Jason Corbett, was laying on the floor of their bedroom at this point seriously injured so rosie are you ready to jump into this i am ryan i am all right jason corbett was born and raised in janesboro which was a suburb of limerick a city in ireland his family was very close he had two sisters named tracy and marilyn and five brothers named wayne chris stephan michael and john so huge family and that helped make him a pretty outgoing person And something I thought was really interesting is that he was into music. He'd actually sing quite a bit at parties and other local events. And one of his favorite singers was Garth Brooks. If you're in Ireland listening to this, can you let us know if country music in Ireland is kind of like exotic to you? Because, you know, it's kind of an American music. Kind of? And like Irish music is really cool and exotic to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just curious about that. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Jason was a hardcore fan of the Limerick GAA, 
which is a sports team that plays both hurling and football. And by football, in the U.S., we would call it soccer. But we'll ignore hurling because we really don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Jason also loved to play golf. While he was at a party, a woman named Lynn Shanahan introduced Jason to her best friend named Margaret Fitzpatrick. And Margaret went by the name Mags. It didn't take too long for Jason and Megs to start dating, and they would go on to get married. Jason got a job working for MPS, a packaging company. And he was able to actually work his way up to an executive position there. Hmm. So, you know, pretty well-educated guy, I guess. In 2004, Jason and Megs got pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy named Jack. Two years later, in 2006, they had a baby girl named Sarah. They must have really enjoyed being parents if they had another one so soon. <laughs> I guess one would say that, huh? <laughs> but the same year Sarah was born, just a few months later in November, Megs had a sudden asthma attack in the middle of the night, and it ended up taking her life. Yeah, so some sources said it was a sudden heart attack, so there's a little discrepancy there. But at this point, Jason is only 30 years old. He has a two-year-old boy and a three-month-old baby girl. Now he's suddenly a widower, and he was devastated. I, I can't imagine the pain of suddenly losing you like that, especially if we had two little kids. That would Just, be so overwhelming. Ugh. Jason's sister, Tracy, started to take care of the kids while Jason was at work. Now that he was on his own, he was struggling to juggle all of his responsibilities. And then someone suggested that he start looking for a nanny, or a au pair. Au pair, yeah. That's a word I don't hear very often. Yeah, but, I couldn't even say it. Uh, it's <laughs> Nothing new there. Au pair oh. is basically a live-in nanny that gets paid in free room and board, and they're typically foreign. It's like they come hmm. to live in a different country, and hmm. they get free room and board if they're the nanny. So that's where Molly Martins comes into the picture. Jason put up an ad for an au pair, and Molly Martins responded to it. And a nanny agency she signed up with actually found it for her. Molly was a young woman from Tennessee in the United States. She ended up getting the job in 2008. At some point, Molly and Jason started to develop feelings for each other. I'm not surprised this would happen. I mean, two adults living in the same house. It's probably going to happen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, some people say it was pretty much the day she moved in that they got physical, but Whoa. they didn't officially get engaged until three years later in 2011, so do with that what you will. The next year, in 2012, Molly started to become homesick and told Jason that she really wanted to go back to the U.S. Jason saw this as an opportunity for a new start, and although it would be hard to leave his close-knit family behind, he found an opportunity with the company he was already working for. They had an open position at a plant they operated in Lexington, North Carolina, so he would be able to transfer there. Sweet. That is quite a transfer. <laughs> that's huge, but at least out of all the states, that's a nice, warm, toasty state. Yeah, not too toasty. It worked out perfectly because it was a four-hour drive from their new home to their uh, to Molly's parents' home in Knoxville, Tennessee. So it's a nice little cushion, not too close <laughs> to family, but close enough. <laughs> Jason, Molly, Jack, and Sarah all moved into a huge 5,500 square foot, four bedroom, three bathroom home. 
and it was set on a half acre of land at 160 Panther Creek Court in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yeah, huge McMansion. It was built in 2006, so it was fairly new, and it was around $390,000. Wow, that's like three of our houses. Yeah, <laughs> three, maybe <laughs> four. Well, no, not quite. three. Anyway, um, it was in the Meadowlands gated community on a golf course, and on top of that, they must have been doing really well because Molly had an $80,000 budget to work with to furnish what? the new home. So they're pretty comfortably well off. Dude, where's my budget to furnish the home? <laughs> <laughs> so almost half a million just for a place to live. That's crazy. Now, Jason was really hoping he'd be able to golf more, especially because they lived right on a golf course. He also joined the local neighborhood soccer league. People who knew Jason around the community thought of him as a very kind man, and he was a huge supporter of Irish immigrants helping people settle in and get on their feet. In August 2015, Jason had plans to travel back to Limerick, Ireland to attend his father's 80th birthday party. Yeah, so he seems like a really kind man who was willing to help others out in the community. But this 80th birthday party, Jason would never actually make it there. This is like we said in the beginning, things went way downhill for him. Because on 3 a.m. on August 2nd, 2015, his father-in-law made that 911 call mm. and reported him seriously in need of assistance. So now we're going to play more of the 911 call as we go. Um, first, we're going to share what Tom initially told the 911 operator. Again, this is at 3.04 a.m. He's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. You know? All right. Okay. Let's um, back up here just a minute. Tell me what happened. Did you hit him in the head? or I hit him in the head. With what? With a baseball bat. With a baseball bat? Yes, ma'am. He was choking. He was choking my daughter. He said, "I'm going to kill her." Where's the baseball bat at? It's in the bedroom here with me. Okay. Just don't touch it anymore, okay? Yes, ma'am. I'm putting some notes in. We've already got them started that way. Right. Just don't hang up. Stay with me. So apparently, Jason and Molly had gotten into some sort of fight, or Jason was threatening to kill Molly. And her dad, Tom, stepped in to protect her. You know, who, what father wouldn't? So that would make this a self-defense case. And in the U.S., at least, we all have the right to defend ourselves from a threat. Mm -hmm. But sadly, when paramedics arrived at the scene, they found Jason in a lot worse shape than they were expecting. He was dead. And we'll talk more about the condition he was in later. But first, we're going to share more of Molly and Tom's history, and then we're going to share the story they told police the night this all went down. Okay, so Thomas Martins was Molly's dad, and he had actually worked for the FBI for over 30 years. Yeah, so this guy was an upstanding citizen. That's a pretty high caliber career. I would say so. He and his wife raised their daughter Molly in Knoxville, Tennessee, Molly did well in school and had planned to go to medical school after graduation. But once she started college, she started to realize that this wasn't for her. Yeah, she said she'd never 
actually had to study for school before. <laughs> I guess she, which means she was a pretty good student, I guess. And it was a challenge that she just wasn't ready for medical school, which is odd because you know you'd have to be really smart to get through school without studying. But wouldn't you expect for medical school to be pretty difficult and have to study? That's just <laughs> yeah, my opinion. <laughs> I think so. But there were other factors that played into her struggles. Molly also struggled with debilitating migraine headaches, which exacerbated her pre-existing depression. You did that so well. I'm really proud of you. First time. <laughs> yeah, first time. <laughs> that, that's a tough combo to deal with, the migraines combined with depression. And, I mean, struggling with depression is hard enough, but when you add physical pain like that on top of it, it's really crippling and can make the depression way worse. So I take back what I, if I implied that she was lazy at all. You know, that's got to be hard. When she was 24, Molly eventually dropped out of medical school. She planned to go somewhere outside of Knoxville to figure herself out for a while. And this is when she decided to sign up for that nanny agency, which helped her find Jason Corbett and his family. He sent her an inquiry about coming to work for him, sharing his tragic story of losing his wife suddenly after having two children with her. So she took the job. Which sounds like a pretty sweet deal. You know, I would do this if, if I had the opportunity. It'd be really awesome to travel to another country and have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone would hire me as a manny anyway. So. According to Jason's family... The same day Molly arrived in Ireland, she clicked with Jason, and the two of them actually slept together. Wow. Talk about jumping in. Yeah, exactly. Like I said earlier, (laughs) this is just what they said. Molly said that it wasn't on the first day, but it was quick. Not that it really matters. They're adults, and she became like a mother figure to the children. She said that taking care of these children and becoming part of this family filled a void that she had, and... Gave her a sense of self-worth that she didn't have after struggling with low self-esteem and depression and all that. Mm. So so pretty much overnight, Molly became a mother. Like we already said, they got married in 2011, and they moved to the U.S. in 2012. One of the friends of the couple named Tony Turner said that Jason was a very friendly and cordial man, loved by everyone in the neighborhood. And his relationship with Molly seemed very loving and close. He never saw anything that made him question their relationship. And he referred to uh, Jason as the gentle Irish giant. So that's sweet. Um, And they also noticed that the couple took really good care of the kids. Little Jack played on the Little League baseball team, and Sarah was very outgoing and social. Things seemed to be going well for this family so far. But there was one thing that was getting under Molly's skin. She wanted to become the legal mother of the children, but Jason wasn't ready for this, and he refused to do it. Yeah, which, this is really tough, because I see both sides. Their real mother died, tragically, and maybe Jason just wasn't ready to replace her for them. And at the same time, Molly was taking care of them like a real mother would, and filling that role. So, I mean, like we saw last week, the people who raise you and care for you can become your real parents because they are the ones filling that role, even if they technically aren't blood. But, you know, I can't pretend to understand the situation from either side. Right. 
Regardless, this was really eating away at Molly, and she tried talking to Jason about it, but these conversations would become very heated and became a point of contention in the relationship. And there's something else Molly claimed about the relationship that no one on the outside was aware of. She said that Jason was very controlling and domineering over her. Which is weird, because, you know... That's exactly the opposite of what Tony said. Yeah, he was seen as the gentle Irish giant, but Molly says behind closed doors it wasn't like that. She said that at first she brushed it off, but over the years it continued to get worse. She said he was really paranoid about her finding someone else and cheating on him. Yeah, so that's a pretty big piece of information coming into this case. Maybe he was really insecure and didn't treat her very well. Hmm. Molly also said that Jason was a bit hypocritical about spending. She talked about a time where he had just bought a new golf club for $500, but then he came home and opened the fridge and saw a case of raspberries and started freaking out and saying, we can't afford raspberries. Yeah, so, I mean, that sounds like a double standard, but sadly for Molly, she was the only one that ever saw the side of him. Because to their friends and neighbors, like we said, Jason was the friendly, life-of-the-party type of guy. And I know a lot of our listeners can probably relate to this type of frustration, you know? Mm -hmm. She says that Jason would dictate to her what she would wear and where she would go. She wasn't even allowed to have her own agency. He'd check her phone and her internet history. So it sounds like a real lack of trust and... He wasn't letting her be her own person, which can be so suffocating. Again, we gotta mention, this is according to Molly's testimony. The couple would have loud and terrible fights in front of the children, and they just kept escalating. And for this, there is evidence to support it. After Jason was found, a social worker interviewed the children, and we're going to play a short clip of what he said. And when he would get mad, what would he do? Now, to be honest, my first thought when I heard him stutter and use the terms physically and verbally was that he was being coached to say these things. But, I mean, he did say he saw punching, hitting, and pushing, so we can't take that lightly. And there's another piece of evidence that these fights weren't were getting out of control. Molly had visited a lawyer while Jason was still alive, asking what she could do to get help. They recommended she record him to get proof of his verbal abuse. I want to re-say that. Oh, okay. Because I want to be more clear on what I mean. Okay. So my first thought when I heard this and heard him stutter and use the terms physically and verbally, like what kid uses those terms, you know? Mm -hmm. My first thought was that he was being coached to say these things. But he did say, she asked him a follow-up question, he said he saw punching, hitting, and pushing. So we can't take that lightly. And there's another piece of evidence also that these fights were getting out of control. Molly had visited a lawyer while Jason was still alive, asking what she could do to get help. They recommended she record him to get proof of his verbal abuse. And that's what she did. We'll play a clip of a recording from that. 
Are you finished with your dinner, hun? I'm talking to you. No. Is this how you treat? This is what you just ignore me? I said I'd like to have dinner with my family. I'm talking to you. I shouldn't have to say it over and over. I shouldn't have to say, Molly. Can you guys get out the stuff for me? No, you're. I'm serious. Here you go again. I'm talking to you. You're still gonna talking about something else. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Now this is tough to dissect because it's such a short snapshot of the conversation and there's no context of what was actually happening there. Mm-hmm. But obviously he was overreacting. He was hitting stuff, which is extreme, especially in front of the kids and yelling really loud. But just from this short clip, I also gathered that she was kind of refusing to communicate with him. Yeah. You know? What did you think, Rosie? Well, it sounded like they were having dinner because she- it sounded like she said something like, are you done with that or something? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought she sounded short, though, like she was just was done with yeah. him. I wish there was more to that recording. But that doesn't mean he can yell like that. No. Especially in front of the exactly. kids. Exactly. It was definitely an overreaction. And, I mean, it's tough because I always say communication is the most important part of a human relationship. And it sounds like he's trying to tell her something. Like... He says he wants to have dinner with his family, and she just keeps ignoring him, which would be frustrating. Um, It almost sounds like she had dinner with the kids before he got home from work or something, and he was upset that they ate without him. Mm, Maybe. That kind of sounds like what's happening, but we don't really know. So, yeah, there's that. Take it how you will. Mm Mm-hmm. Molly also says that Jason would sometimes choke her in a rage while they were in bed. And often, it would turn into something sexual. She says that after discovering this side of him, she started to wonder if this had anything to do with the death of Jason's first wife, Mags. Yikes. So there's a theory. I mean, Mags officially died of an asthma attack, but could it have been induced by choking? Oof. That's that's a pretty rough thought right there. Yeah. Molly's father, Tom says that he was talking to Meg's father at a family get-together while Molly and Jason were dating. His name was Mikey Fitzpatrick. Tom says that he asked Mikey what his thoughts were on Jason. So he was trying to get an idea of the kind of man his daughter was dating, and this was the father of the woman that Jason was married to before, so it seems like a good place to start. Tom says that in response to the question, Mikey said, I think he killed my daughter. So, that's pretty heavy, and could play a huge role in how this case is perceived later on. But, later on, the Fitzpatrick family was interviewed, and they said that this conversation never happened. So, is Tom lying about it? Like, why would the family of a girl that Tom claims was killed by Jason defend the person they suspected of murdering their daughter? That doesn't make much sense. But Jason's dead and can't defend himself. I mean, don't get me wrong, I want to believe the victim, but it's weird that they'd lie about this conversation. It is. Molly said she thought about leaving him sometimes, but she couldn't bear the thought of making those kids lose a second mother, which I completely understand. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a good reason to make it work, I guess. So now with a little context, let's go into what Molly and Tom say happened that night. On Saturday evening, August 1st, 2015, around 8.30 p.m., 
Molly's parents, Tom and Sharon, came over to their daughter's house to stay overnight. Tom had brought a gift for his grandson, Jack, a baseball bat that belonged to Tom. He thought it would be a nice, sentimental gift for Jack. Yeah, I remember Jack played Little League Baseball. But he was actually at a birthday party that evening, so I guess Tom didn't get a chance to give it to him that night. I hope he got Sarah something, because I know that game. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Tom and Sharon slept in a guest room in the basement. Molly and Jason's room was upstairs on the ground level, and the kids' room was upstairs on the top level. Yeah, so everyone's sleeping on different floors. But according to Molly's testimony, at around 3 a.m., she woke up to Sarah outside of the bedroom door, whispering for her. Sarah told Molly that she was having a nightmare, so Molly quietly brought her back up to her room and laid with her until she got back to sleep. Then Molly went back down to her bedroom, but Jason woke up when she came back to bed. Molly says that he was really angry because he thought Molly was coddling Sarah too much by getting up in the middle of the night with her. Again, Sarah was 8 at this point and Jack was 10 or 11. Molly says that she would typically shrug off Jason's anger, But since her parents were in the house, she was more confident to stand up for herself. She argued that Sarah wasn't too old to get some comfort in the middle of the night. And so Tom, at this point, remembers waking up to loud voices and thumping upstairs. So he was worried about what was going on, and he grabbed that baseball bat that he brought for Jack. Then he told his wife Sharon that he'd be back and went up to see what the noise was about. Molly says that Jason was trying to shut her up, so he grabbed and covered her mouth, then started choking her. When he finally let go, she screamed, and he grabbed her again. Then, Molly saw her dad standing in the doorway with the baseball bat. So Tom says that when he got to the doorway, he saw Jason with his hands around Molly's neck. Then when Jason noticed him, he moved Molly to have her back against his chest, So they were both facing Tom in the doorway, and he had her in a chokehold, like he was holding her hostage. Molly says that she was less fearful of what would happen, and more ashamed that her father was seeing her in this position. Tom says that he told Jason to let her go, but Jason said, I'm going to kill her, and started dragging her into the attached master bathroom to try to barricade them away from Tom who worried that if Jason got that door shut between them, his daughter would be dead, and there would be nothing left he could do about it. So Tom, in protective father mode, reached around and hit him in the back of the head with the bat. But Mm. this didn't stop Jason, because he was a big dude, and Tom's this little skinny guy, and he kept dragging her toward the bathroom. Then Tom says that Jason shut the bathroom door, but Tom was right behind them, and once the door was shut, he was right back in there with him. Then again, he hit Jason in the back of the head as hard as he could. He says Jason maintained his grasp on Molly's throat and grabbed the bat away from Tom with his other hand, ripped it out of his hands, and sent Tom flying across the room. So, this is pretty intense. Um, but am I the only one that thought it was weird that Jason backed into the bathroom dragging Molly and Tom was right behind them and he was trying to barricade Tom out of the bathroom 
But even though Tom got in the bathroom with them, Jason still shut the door? That's very odd. The only thing I can think of is he doesn't want Sharon or Sarah to hear. True. True. But then after that, Tom says that Jason ripped the bat out of Tom's hands and threw Tom back into the bedroom. So somehow he maintained his grip on Molly, was able to stop the bat and rip it away, and then he somehow got the door opened up again and threw Tom across the room. This is a lot. (laughs) Yeah, in this scenario, it kind of sounds like he has four arms or something. But Tom and uh, Molly explain this as, you know, Jason's a big, burly dude, and Tom's a little dude. Maybe he's just way stronger than Tom. Maybe. So Tom is back in the bedroom on his hands and knees, and Jason lets go of Molly and stands over Tom with the bat. Now, Molly is terrified that her father was going to be killed by him. But Tom says he was able to get back on his feet, rush at Jason, and grab the bat with both hands, holding on for dear life. As he held on, he was trying to hit Jason in any way possible. He said, quote, I'm trying to hit him with the bat, hit him with my elbow, hit him with my fist, or anything else. But I'm going to hang on to that bat. Then Tom says Jason went down. Tom realized he wasn't going to get up, and it looked like the threat was over. Okay, so I'm not trying to be difficult, but how did Tom hit Jason with his fist while holding on to the bat with both hands for For dear dear life? life? Yeah. I guess maybe he just kept his hand on the bat while he did it, but Tom was apparently able to do a lot of damage while hitting Jason and fighting for the bat. So what do you think of this so far, Rosie? I think it's really confusing and hard to follow. And I don't I don't know how you hold on to something for dear life with one hand. So Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like there's some holes and some things I'm like, well how would that work? And these are just the things that I noticed while reading their testimony that were just they just got to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But we'll talk more about this later when we talk about the trial. But now we're going to play the rest of the 911 call, which paints finishes to paint this picture. So fair warning, the things said get a little graphic. I edited a 15-minute call down to just the important stuff, so this third part is about eight minutes long. If you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead eight minutes but it will help to paint that picture of the scene after these events and the general attitude of Tom and Molly. Is he conscious at all? No. Is he breathing? I can't tell. All right, what I need for you to do is I need someone to roll him onto his back, flat on his back. Okay, hang on. He's a big, heavy man, I can't do it. All right, is there anyone there that can help you? My daughter, and she's in terrible shape. Okay, someone needs to get him on his back. We need to verify his breathing. I'm trying, lady. Hang on. Okay, just put your phone on speaker. Okay, I've got him rolled over. All right, I want you to put one hand under his neck, the other hand on his forehead, and tilt his head back. Put your ear next to his mouth and tell me if you can see or hear or feel any breathing. I, I can't see him, no. All right, I'm sending the paramedics and ambulance to help you now. Stay on the line. Okay. All right, so we're going to start CPR. I need you to make sure that his mouth and nose are clear. It's a mess. 
I know you need to clear it. Okay. Just give me like a washcloth or something. Yeah, she's sending somebody. Okay. All right. Everything is clear? Yeah, as clear as I can get. He's covered in blood. All right. Listen carefully. I'll tell you how to do chest compressions. Yeah. All right. Make sure that he's flat on his back with no pillows under his head. Yeah. Place the heel no of your hand. No pillows under his head. No, nothing under his head. Yeah. Got it. All right. First of all, tell your daughter to go unlock the door and turn on the front porch light. Go unlock the door and turn on the porch light. Place the heel of your hand on the breastbone in the center of his chest, right between the nipples. I'm somewhat familiar with this. Okay, I, I have to give the instructions. You just go ahead and do it if you know what to do. Put the other hand on top of that hand. Yeah. Pump the chest hard and fast at least twice per second, two inches deep. Yeah. Let the chest come all the way up between the pumps. We're going to do this 600 times or until help can take over. Count out loud so that I can count with you. I'll set a pace for you. One. Faster if you can. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I'm handing the phone to my daughter. All right. Hey, are you with me? Yeah. All right, listen to me. I need you to calm down so that we can help him, okay? All right, your dad's going to need some help pumping. I need you to get ready to pump, okay? okay. When okay. he gets to 200 pumps, you're going to take over. Okay. He can show you how to place your hands, but I need you to stay calm. I'm, I'm certified. I, I just can't think. Okay, you have to stay calm. Let your training take over. So we need to try and do this to help him, okay? Okay. All right, keep your dad pumping. One, two, three, four. That rate. Right. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Good. Two, three, four. Three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Don't hesitate between. Keep going. Two, three, four. One, two, One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Good. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Keep going. One, two, three, four. Keep going. Is she pumping? You count for her if you can. One, two, three, four. Four. One. I'll count. I'll count. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. She's doing a good job. She's a, she's a, uh, you know, Yeah, she said that she's certified. She's, her, she's, her training's taking over now. You just get prepared to take over for her again. Okay. Just don't stop between. Make the change quick. She's slowing down. Try to get her to come back up. Slowing down. Got it. Are you rested enough to take over for her? I guess I'll have to be.
good. Keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. One, two, three, four. Don't freak. I need you to stay with me. Keep counting. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. You're doing a good job. Keep going. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. All right, try. One, two, three, four. Try and rest your arms because you're going to take over for your dad again. One, two, three, four. Okay, she's taking over again. Okay. You're about halfway there. Tell her to try not to stop between the pumps. Keep going. Keeping the blood circulating, keeping the oxygen in there, in there is, until we can get some help there. Alright, she's slowing down. You feel like taking over for her? Right. Okay. What is your name? Mommy. All right, listen to me. One, this is the count. One, two, three, four. 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 They're, they're coming in now. All right, just keep pumping. All right, sir. Yes. All right, take your daughter and back away and let them do yes. their job. Let, let, let them do their job. Right. Try and keep her calm, okay? Okay. Y'all did a good job. Molly, Molly, let, let, them, do their, let them do their job. Let's... Okay, they're here now. Okay. Can you take Molly out of the room? Okay, Molly, she, she suggests we get out of the room. Okay, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. All right. Um, law enforcement's on the way. All right. If I can do anything else, just let me know, okay? No, I, I need to get my daughter out of there. Okay. All right, All right call us back if you need us. Molly, Molly, come on out of there. So just a few thoughts. Molly had a really hard time counting steadily. <laughs> she kept pausing after four, and that drove me nuts. But I can understand that she would be really shaken up after this. It'd be really difficult. And another thing is just the inconvenience of having to perform CPR that Tom was showing. Like he just through his voice, it sounded like he was just rolling his eyes about it that right. he had to do this. But that's just my thoughts, which I've formed after knowing how the rest of this unfolds uh, with the investigation and evidence. Mm -hmm. So let's keep going. All right.
So after police arrived, they brought Molly and Tom back to the station for interviews. Molly looked rough when they arrived. Her face was covered in blood, and she looked pretty beat up. But after they cleaned her up, they noticed that she didn't have any injuries. Hmm. Why does this remind me of Jussie Smollett? (laughs) But to be fair, she had a small red mark on her neck where she said Jason had her in a chokehold. It's really hard to see in the photo. It kind of looks like a shadow, but... But it's there? I think so. Molly and Tom were photographed and questioned. Then about seven hours after the call, they were free to go. When they got back to the house, Tom went up to the sheriff and asked how long they'd be there, and he was told that they were done. They were able to process the scene in seven hours, which seems pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, that's what Tom said, too. It's... To me, I mean, it seems like a pretty decent chunk of time to bag some stuff up and snap photos, you know? You would, I'd, I would think the real investigative work would be done later by examining the collected evidence. But mm. Well, they're again, not, like, grabbing it and throwing it in a hamper. I mean, I'm well, sure I know, they but they be. collect physical evidence and then they take photos. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. What do I know? Yeah, I've what never, do you know? I've never, never done anything like this, so. Okay. <laughs> After collecting the evidence, investigators had a much different idea of what happened than what Tom and Molly had told them. So that's weird. The evidence isn't quite lining up with the story. So now we're going to go through some of the evidence that we could find from the crime scene. First, there's the blood spatter. So based on the blood splatter, Jason's head was only 12 to 18 inches off the ground when he was being struck. This implies that he was being struck while he was laying down. So that's odd. Usually someone that's down on the ground isn't a threat anymore. And more importantly, this doesn't line up with the story. Mm -mm. But another piece of evidence that was missing from their story was the brick. There was a brick found on the scene that had apparently been used to hit Jason on the head. Yeah, so the narrative that we shared earlier of their side of the story was based on their interviews with 2020, which was a pretty good documentary. Um, This was before they went to trial that they shared this. But during the initial police interview, Molly did admit that she hit Jason on the head with the brick. Hmm. Um, but later her lawyers told her it was not a good idea to discuss it I'm guessing because it didn't quite line up with the narrative that Tom provided in his story didn't quite it was completely different (laughs) so now you see why this case is divided and kind of interesting so let's get more of the evidence Molly claimed later that she had the brick on her nightstand because it was going to be a painting project for the kids. I mean, I guess you paint bricks and rocks, but why did you have it in your bedroom on your nightstand? Yeah, exactly. Like, wouldn't it be in the toy room or wherever they do arts and crafts? Like, do parents usually keep kids' stuff in their bedroom? You know? I'm not a mom, so... True. I guess maybe with a brick, like, kids could accidentally hurt themselves if they get a hold of it. That kind of thing I think you just leave outside until you're ready to paint it. True. Yeah, it, it is odd. 
When they examined the nightshirt that Molly was wearing, they noticed blood splatter on it. And when they arrived, there was blood all over her face, but she had no injuries. So she had to have been in close proximity to Jason while he was being bludgeoned. So if she was afraid of him killing her, wouldn't she be trying to run away? Tom also didn't have any injuries after the confrontation, even though he claimed that Jason was throwing him around like a rag doll. Yeah, you'd think an old guy like that would get a bruise or two, but despite having no injuries, his shirt was also covered in blood spatter, so he was Mm. also in close proximity. Even more suspicious is that there was blood splatter on Tom's boxers, indicating that Jason was low down while Tom hit him. Yeah, which is not good. It almost seems like Tom was the one standing over Jason while he was down on his hands and knees. So the biggest tragedy in this case for me is these kids, Jack and Sarah. I mean, they had already lost their real mom when they were young, but now they have lost their dad. After this, there was an intense custody battle because Jason's will officially recorded his sister, Tracy Lynch, as the godmother of the children. And he still hadn't let Molly adopt them legally. So you'd think, well, that's simple enough. Send them back to Ireland where they're safe. But while the social worker that we uh, played the recording of earlier was talking to Jack, she asked him some questions, and his answers are hard to ignore. She asked, do you like her? And do you want to stay with her? And he answered yes to both questions. But despite this, to Molly's shock, a social worker came to the house and took the kids away. Molly said that this destroyed her, and they begged not to be taken away from her. So, this is what's so sad, because these kids really, really loved her, and they even wrote her letters. These are so sad. I know. Sarah wrote, Dear Mom, I love you so much. I hope this makes you smile with three hearts. And then Jack wrote, Dear Mom, I love you so much times 999 billion. We will never leave you. You are the greatest mom anyone could have. Thank you for being a super mom. I love you past the universe and back. Love, Jack. So those are heavy words coming from these children. They really loved her, which is why this sucks so much. These poor kids were ripped away from the lives that they knew. And... I mean, before this, they obviously had to live with parents that fought a lot, and then this happened, and they couldn't really understand why they were being taken away at the time, because they had no idea what happened. So this had to completely break their hearts. And now, if the person they knew as their mother is facing criminal charges based on the evidence they found, that would make life even harder for them. But social workers had to do the really difficult thing here and put these children in a safe place where they legally belonged. Mm -hmm. So the kids went back to Ireland to live with their aunt Tracy. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to talk a little bit more about the crime scene. The injuries on Jason Corbett were horrific. And yet Tom and Molly, the ones claiming self-defense, had no injuries to show for it. The next part is really graphic, so we want to warn you, it's viewer or listener discretion, but we think it's necessary to share these details because it shows how extreme the violence against Jason was, 
and really helps clinch my personal opinion on this case. When the police arrived on the scene, they found something a lot more gruesome than what they had expected from the 911 call. Jason's autopsy found the cause of death to be blunt force head trauma. He suffered multiple lacerations, abrasions, and contusions of the head, extensive skull fractures, and hemorrhages, as well as other blunt force injuries, scattered abrasions and contusions of torso and extremities. Jason's skull had been crushed, and his scalp ripped off. I mean, that is so such a long list. That was and horrifying. A lot. And this is why I can no longer buy the self-defense claim. This, along with the blood spatter being close to the floor and on the boxers, uh, he was obviously beaten way past the point of being a threat. Like I said, there are two very passionate sides here, but, I mean, you got to choose to go with either the testimony or the evidence, and I think the evidence should always outweigh the testimony. I mean, evidence can't lie. It's the only way to be unbiased. And not only does the evidence not line up with their narrative, but they obviously beat him long after the threat was over, even if he was attacking them. Now, Tom claimed he stopped once once Jason was on the floor and the threat was over after just hitting him a few times while trying to get the bat away. But this is just not possible, given this evidence. Tom and Molly were both charged with second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. They both had an issue with the police after this because they were never called in for another interview. Tom, being a former FBI, figured they'd want to interview them again after the shock had worn off to get a better picture of what happened. But I'm thinking, what good is your interview when it's already so obvious that what you said before was a lie? Yeah, he just wants more time to come up with a better one. Yeah. More polished. And your first interview does not match the evidence, so you've completely discounted yourself as a reliable source. And this is the only problem they can think of to call out about the investigation, to be honest, is that they weren't called back in. So, In the 2020 interview before the trial, the interviewer asked Tom if he was feeling confident. He replied, I feel worried, but I feel righteous. I would not want to live with not having taken action. Then the same interviewer asks Molly if she's guilty of murder. And of course, she said no. But I noticed that she had some weird body language. When she said no, her eyes kind of rolled around like she was afraid to make eye contact. And then after, she twitched like it hurt to say that. So it kind of seems like she's lying based on body language and i'll post a little clip on instagram of this i just think it's really interesting during trial tom claimed he did what any father would do he said that once it all started it was a fight and you either fight and lose or fight and win yeah first of all winning doesn't mean killing them and second Where are your battle scars if this was an actual fight? The prosecutor pointed out the ridiculous flip-flopping in Tom's story. 
The story went from Molly and Tom being ridiculously overpowered by Jason's brute strength to Tom being able to get up from the low ground and overpower Jason. And somehow by the end, Jason was beat to a pulp and Tom had no injuries. It's pretty obvious. Another strange thing was that during this whole fight where people were being thrown around and beaten, Sharon never came upstairs. She never called 911 for them. She just played no part in the story. Yeah, and what I would guess is that she found out what happened and she just threw her hands in the air and said, I want nothing to do with this. This is your thing. Leave me out of it. You yeah, know? I could see that. I'd maybe I like, wouldn't want a part of this. Yeah, just pretend to keep sleeping. I don't know. Tom and Molly ended up being found guilty, and each of them was sentenced to 20 to 25 years in prison. Later, one of the jury members recalled getting physically sick after seeing the crime scene photos of Jason. Like, they almost hurled. It was so bad. It was just brutal. Now, Molly had said she was abused by Jason, and like I said, I want to believe the victim, but it's worth noting that Molly shared most of the physical abuse stories after Jason was dead, and I don't think there's any proof that she actually did talk to a lawyer before this happened about the recordings. I think she might have just made them. Okay. And if it was true, she had a pretty strong motive for coming up with these stories. You know, she was facing serious charges of murder. On the other hand, if the stories of abuse were true, that could have been the motive in itself, you mm -hmm. know, for wanting to intentionally kill Jason. Obviously, I think abuse is horrible, but there's never a good reason to murder somebody. You know, after hearing about the crime scene evidence here, the self-defense angle just does not hold up. Earlier, we talked about the children and the difficulty they had in leaving Molly behind. But there were some incidents that Tracy brought up of how Molly had treated the kids. She says that one time, Jack had playfully splashed Molly with water, and in response, she grabbed him and brought him into the kitchen. Then she put his face under the faucet of the sink and ran water over him. So she basically waterboarded a child and... This was while the whole family was there, so there were several witnesses to this. And if she's comfortable doing that around people, yeah. that's not a good sign. No kidding. Jason apparently ran in and tried to stop her, but she pushed him away. Everyone was shouting for Molly to stop, and when she did, she told Jack, Now you'll think twice about splashing water on me. Ugh. Tracy says she thinks the erratic behavior was because Molly was desperate for her children's love and insecure about herself, causing her to be an unstable mother. Sounds like a Disney evil stepmother. Kinda. Tracy also says that Molly had to force Jack to start calling her mom, and that at first, when Jack refused, she punished him for it. Yeah, remember, Jack was two when his real mom died, and didn't meet Molly until he was four. So, I mean, it makes sense that he wouldn't want to make this adjustment right away. Right. Tracy says Molly's demeanor would change on a dime. She'd be really calm, and then she'd lose control. And suddenly she's back to being calm again. Which sounds really disconcerting. Like, this person's crazy. How can I trust them? Tracy also claims that Molly was a bit of a bridezilla at the wedding. Aren't we all? <laughs> 
She says Molly flipped out at the wedding and started screaming at Jason and at Tracy's husband. She threw her maid of honor and her parents out of the wedding. Oh, jeez. Yeah. This is according to Tracy again, but it's very possible. It kind of lines up with that recording Molly took of Jason yelling, where Molly was acting strangely calm and just ignoring Jason while he tried to communicate with her. You know, he may have overreacted, but honestly, she sounds like kind of a pain to live with if what Tracy says here is true. Again, I'd, I'd never just assume an abuse victim is lying, but she murdered him and then tried to destroy his character. You know, she bashed her husband's face in with a brick. So I don't feel bad for her anymore. Does that make me a terrible person? No. Like, I just feel like I can't trust what she says because Mm -hmm. she didn't provide any real evidence of abuse. I think there's probably truth on both Sarah, or both on Molly and Jason's sides, you know? Yeah. But the situation situation did not call for murder in any way, shape, or form. And that was not the solution. Yeah, exactly. And there's only evidence supporting one side. Yeah, true. That I could find. So, um, so anyway, as if that wasn't enough, there is more evidence that would give motive to Molly. Just before Jason died, he told his children that they were leaving the next day to go back to Ireland. They had packed a suitcase and he told his sister that he was researching flights. But apparently, the suitcase and the computer were not found at the house. And even more strange, Jason's mobile phone had vanished from the house. Well, so I wonder where those went. Why would his phone be missing, you know, unless they were trying to hide evidence? Because Jason was there, his phone would be with him. No one parts with their cell phone, you know. And of course, let's not leave out the detail that's ever present when someone kills their spouse. The The life life insurance insurance policy. policy. (laughs) Oh, that was good unison. Jason had his life insurance set up to pay out 25% to each child and 50% to Molly. But a few months before Jason died, the policy had been changed from the computer to make Molly the sole beneficiary, giving her 100% of the payout. Whew. I didn't know you could do that online. I didn't either. But, I mean, how can that be a coincidence? Why would Jason make this change? So, it had to be Molly making this change. And remember how she said Jason would freak out on her for buying raspberries after he bought a golf club? Well, it turns out Molly had a bit of a spending problem herself. In just ten months before Jason's death... Molly had spent $90,000 on clothes, trips, and trinkets for herself. Also, restaurant bills. Can you remember this next time I want to spend a little money? (laughs) You want to spend two years' salary? No, I mean, like, oh, well, Rosie just wants to spend 50. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one year's salary. Fine. No, $50, not 50,000. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um,. Well, anyway, that explains why Jason was worried about their budget. You know, it wasn't the raspberries. (laughs) To be fair, this was probably for her and the children and the family, you know. But $90,000 is double what the average person makes in a year. And this was only 10 months. So, yeah, the spending was extreme. 
According to Tracy, one of the children also told her that they had come into a room and found Molly hitting herself with a big hairbrush. Okay. Um, in retrospect, they suspect that she was trying to bruise herself. Right. You know, f- for evidence against Jason. But again, we weren't there. This is according to Tracy's testimony. Only Molly and the kids really know what actually went on in that house. And we probably won't have any unbiased or uncoerced information from the kids until they're older. Because they went from one side to the other with where they were living. And the side, the people they're living with are the sides that the kids have been taking mm-hmm. when they're interviewed. So, you know, no one was there. We can't say for sure either way, which is... Why we're just presenting all this, and even though it's obvious we have an opinion, you form your own opinion, you know? So there was one more bit of info from the day before Jason's death we want to share. During a local neighborhood party, Molly started making fun of Jason for his weight. Ouch! It humiliated him so much that he left the party by himself and just went home. That's sad. It is sad. That shows that he was actually really insecure about it. His final social media post before his death was saying something about how people always question the good things about you, but are quick to believe any negative things without a second thought. That's true. According to Tracy, this is when Jason told her that he was going to take his kids and move back to Ireland, and he didn't plan on bringing Molly with him. He was even looking into investing in a business in Limerick. Tracy believes that this was possibly the motive for the murder. Molly didn't want to lose those kids. So, I mean, this is all Tracy's side, but it could make sense. So, one huge problem I have with the story that Tom told is that he said Jason dragged Molly into the bathroom and Tom was right behind them. And then Jason shut the door with Tom in the bathroom. Like, why? You know, I mentioned this earlier, but just why would this happen? And you'd think Jason would kick Tom or something to get him out. But Tom just said he hit Jason again with the bat hard in the back of the head. So how does he keep hitting Jason in the back of the head when Jason's dragging her backwards and Molly's between them? Like, how can he get enough momentum and leverage behind the bat if he's having to reach around to hit him? You know? Right. It doesn't make sense. And one more thing I found odd when watching his interview on 2020 is that he's reenacting the scene with his hands while he tells it. But while he's talking about Jason holding Molly's throat with one hand and catching the bat with his other hand, he's saying, I'm swinging the bat, but his hands are mimicking the actions of Jason. Like, he has his right arm across his chest mimicking the chokehold, And then he has his left hand pretending to catch the bat. So Hmm. this may seem small, but it's a common thing when someone's lying for their body to subconsciously disagree with what they're saying with their mouth by doing the opposite things. It's called nonverbal communication, which is something I learned from watching Derek Van Shake on YouTube, who we talked about a lot with Jussie Smollett. But for instance, when someone says yes, but shakes their head as if to say no, or vice versa. It's subtle, but it's just really weird that Tom would be acting out Jason's actions in the story 
and not his own experiences in the situation. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost as if he concocted the whole thing in his mind, because in that case, the actions he's attributing to Jason actually originated from himself. So, just something that stood out to me, and I'm also gonna put, post that clip on Instagram along with Molly's, and. Just one more thing, sorry for the rant, but a lot of the time when Molly was talking, telling her side of the story, she was avoiding eye contact and looking at the ceiling, which is another widely recognized sign of lying. The theory is that when someone's telling the truth, they make eye contact, or if they don't, they look in front of them in their field of vision as they're reliving the events, you know? And if their eyes are looking somewhere completely unnatural, it's more like they're concocting a story on the spot. It does make sense. Yeah. Again, there's this isn't a hundred percent like agreed on. It could also just be a sign of nervousness, you know. But it's just something to think about and something you should watch for yourself. So that was long winded, I know. But <laughs> I'm not quite done. Rosie, <laughs> do you have anything to say before I share my theory of what happened? You go right ahead. Alright. So my theory Based on what I see, this is completely my theory and could be totally off from what actually happened, but because the accounts of Tom and Molly tell a completely different story than the crime scene, we don't know what to believe. But I think this may have been premeditated. Molly knew Jason was getting ready to go back to Ireland for his father's birthday, and sounds like he was telling his sister he was planning on staying. And... In fact, he had told her he already had a bag packed and ready to go. Mm -hmm. So either Molly was afraid that he'd never come back and he was going to take the kids away from her, or maybe she was fed up with the verbal and physical abuse if she was telling the truth about that. Either way is a motive. So she had that brick on her nightstand, which she told Jason she was going to paint with the kids the next day. And in the middle of the night, I think she may have woken up in a rage over the way he was treating her or worrying over losing the kids and just hit him over the head with the brick while he was sleeping. Wow. Maybe she hit him repeatedly. She may have killed him right then and there. And then she panicked and ran downstairs to where her parents were sleeping, not knowing what to do and asking for help from her former FBI father. And then he came upstairs with her and helped her to stage the crime scene so they could weave their story around it. Did a terrible job, but (laughs) like we mentioned, a jury member lost their lunch when they saw the pictures of Jason. It was horrific. And even if he did wake up in a rage and attack her first, the injuries were far too extreme to just be self-defense. His skull was crushed. And that doesn't happen from just protecting yourself with a baseball bat. So whoever did this was obviously full of passionate rage. Um, And I would argue that the threat, if there was one, was contained long before they had the chance to crush his skull. But I wasn't there. I don't know for sure. This is just my theory. Um, Another thought is that Jason really did start choking her and Tom came up and saw this and... Tom just lost his mind in protection mode over his daughter and wouldn't stop beating Jason. Then Molly grabbed the brick to help him out and they just let their blind rage take over. I mean, this version more lines up with their testimony but still doesn't qualify as self-defense. 
The one thing we do know is that they did kill Jason. So, what do you think, Rosie? I think that the brick, the brick right there is just a really weird, I just don't think you'd put a brick on your nightstand and wait right to use it for crafts i feel like that would be an outside thing or you'd have it in the garage i just don't know why it would be on your nightstand in your bedroom yeah so like right after hearing that i was like okay true well and the brick was obviously a part of it because i don't think you could do the kind of damage that was done to his skull right with a baseball bat. and the blood splatter because i watched an episode of dexter and now i'm an expert on <laughs> that <laughs> exactly <laughs> But anyway, this was very long-winded, very long episode because we wanted to present everything we could find, and you make up your mind on your own. Mm-hmm. But I know where I stand, and you guys do too after <laughs> that long rant. But we're going to wrap it up because it's been a long episode. And we got to go bowling. Yeah. So if you're on Instagram, go follow us there at VOV Podcast. Um, if you're on Twitter, we're at VOVpod. Email us at VOVpodcast at gmail.com. And we have a P.O. Box now. It's P.O. Box 1425 in Hudson, Wisconsin, 54016. So if you ever feel like sending us anything, you can do it there. And that's about it. We appreciate you guys listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.